up there. Let me, let me go ahead and introduce to everybody what we're going to do during this session. Um, so most Christians in the United States in the last 10 years, I suppose, have become keenly aware of the cultural shifts. Maybe the crystallizing moment of the last four or five years has been the over, oh, I can never pronounce it, overt fell decision of the Supreme Court to legalize gay unit blood on our country. Being American. So it's been Maybe a crystallizing point for many people, it has spawned a lot of books, a lot of prayer, a lot of thoughts uh, around where we are as a country, where Christians are as a country. Uh, so this morning we're going to be discussing a handful of these books, and it's not so much that we need to respond to these books as much as it is Christian brethren praying, thinking, and writing about these ideas and how we can relate to those ideas. In some ways, when these books came along, that we're going to discuss this morning, I kind of felt like, well, yeah, we've been trying to think about this for 30, 40 years. And I didn't see a lot that was shockingly new or uh, amazingly different from what we've been trying to do. But in many ways, it's a confirmation of a lot of what we're trying to do. So what we want to do this morning is sort of, um, each of us are go going to, there's four of us, I thought there were five. Each of us is going to present one book in keeping with the theme of me doing something shorter. I'm actually going to present an essay, not a book. Uh, but anyway, we're each going to just present the, the brief contents of these books and then maybe share about how, um, how that relates to what we're doing as a, as, as a group of churches, how, that might, uh, how we might respond to that. Um, and then hopefully have a discussion up here, out there, uh, just related to what we're doing and our values and how we position ourselves in the world. And you know, in keeping with what Andy shared at the end of our meeting last night, we're a pebble. We're a puzzle piece in a much bigger thing. Uh, but it is important for us to stay tuned with our Christian brethren in Lexington, uh, across the world, and um, in really through the ages. And so this is part of just keeping ourselves in touch with that discussion. Does that make sense? So um, I guess what we'll do, so Matt has the Benedict Option by Rod Dreyer. Ben has, I don't know the name of it. The Vanishing American Adult, the Vanishing American Adult by Ben Sass. And Dan, you're? That's right. Are they in a particular order in the notes? What's first in the notes? All right. Well, we'll just go with the order that's in the notes. So we'll start with Matt. And, um, and we're trying to keep the presentation about seven or eight minutes and then question and answer, and then we'll move on to the other books. Um, so I have the Benedict Option by Rob Dreyer. Uh, this was an excellent. We on? Um, this was an excellent read, actually. Um, I would recommend it to anybody. Um, so I want to start. Uh, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about the author, and then we'll kind of move through the book. Um, Rod Dreher is a uh, he's a journalist by trade. He graduated from LSU with a journalism degree. Um, he writes for a lot of conservative type magazines and his kind of the category that he has is probably politics slash culture. 
Um, so he writes for a lot of like National Review, uh, First Things, uh, conservative type outlets. He also has a blog that he has various small articles on, all dealing with conservative perspectives on uh, politics. Um, he grew up as a Methodist, and then uh, I think right around college or maybe after college, he converted. He had an experience while traveling. He converted to Catholicism, and then I think during the um, oh the uh, the priest stuff that went on with the Catholic Church, uh, he got fed up with that, and then he converted to Orthodoxy. So he is currently uh, in the Orthodox Church, I think in Texas somewhere, I believe. Louisiana. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, he grew up in Louisiana. Um, he his his first book that he wrote was uh, called Crunchy Conservatives. Uh, he was kind of advocating for a a not kind of, not a mainstream conservative type, but um, conservatives who are very pro environment, uh, farmers market, uh, organic eating, but also kind of those southern themes of small town. Uh, guns. Uh, the, the unique thing about him, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but organic food, sorry. No more bologna. Uh, the, the unique thing about him, though, is he kind of fitting in that hipster genre, some, some apprehension about free market, so traditional conservative ideas about the free market. He's more, uh, he sees a lot of issues with materialism. So, so the Benedict option, let me jump right, right in. So it makes sense that he, as a writer, uh, is, was probably pretty you know, close to the epicenter of what we call the cultural war, which is basically this battle between uh, conser the conservative Republican Party, Christians within the conservative Republican Party, and the progressive liberal left over kind of the... The, the, the cultural issues uh, in politics, the, the, the community fabric, ideas like marriage and gender roles, uh, he was probably at the, the center of that battle that has been going on over the last so many years. Uh, so in this book, his, his, his primary, I guess, thesis is that battle has been waging and, and, and Christians have tied themselves with the conservative party, the Republican Party, to advance our uh, traditional kind of Mayberry-style family community values. Uh, and he says, and so this book was written in, in spring of 2017, uh, he says that at this point that battle has been lost, okay? So the, the conservatives have lost that battle with the, with the left. Chad mentioned Oberfell, which is the... Supreme Court decision, uh, he points to that in Trump. He's not a fan of Trump. Um, so he, he points to that, and, and Trump in this new conservative uh, personality that's very focused on um, the market and, and providing the opportunity for people to succeed financially as the major thrust in the Republican Party now. Uh, and he also points to the fact that the, many people in the Republican Party uh, don't share our position on homosexuality and the family anymore. So those things are lost. Uh, so what he says is we are so far past um, the, the traditional values in our culture and in our politics uh, that it, it is fruitless for us to wage that battle in the mainstream kind of political realm anymore. So um, 
And he says that for a lot of reasons. He says not only politically we don't have a party that can represent us, or maybe we don't have a party that we can, with a good conscience, join ourselves with anymore, but he also says in the, in the populace or the public generally, uh, since we are a liberal, uh, and I'll say liberal in the terms of political party, since we are a liberal government, that is, uh, the, the, we are a de- democracy, the will of the people will dominate. And if you look at statistics in our culture now, we're so far past anybody believing those traditional values anymore. There's no going back. Um, and so he, um, he, his, his suggestion in this book is that we, um, as uh, Christians, retreat uh, from the battle or, or the lines and create small subcultural communities where in which we live out the values uh, in a very pure and, and uncompromised manner in small communities and cultures. And uh, he points to uh, uh, Benedict, who is a guy that kind of in the downfall of Rome, he, he lived in a, a small Italian village. He went to Rome and he saw the corruption and the gross immorality that was going on in Rome. Uh, and he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a monastery. So he started a monastery and he wrote a book, which Dan probably knows a lot about, uh, called The Benedict Rule, or, uh, and it was, a, it was basically a guideline of how the monks were to live in this monastery. You, uh, you wake up, you pray, you read scripture, uh, you work, you learn, and then you repeat. Um, and so he says that we can look to the Benedict Rule or that kind of lifestyle as a model for the, in this age for us to live these communal uh, lifestyles that are that are uncompromised uh, in in our values, and um, that's the way that we continue. Now there is one exception that I think is very unique. He he says that we should not abandon all political involvement, but there's one issue that he still thinks is important, and that is the issue of religious freedom. So he says that we should continue to be involved politically to maintain the ability to practice our um, religious views without government uh, intervention. I'm moving slowly through this. Um, there are four, what I'll do is jump to, there are, so, so he then talks about, he actually goes to the Benedictine monastery and kind of looks at the life of these guys. Uh, and I'll list some of the things that he talks about, some uh, significant values that those monks hold on a daily basis. It's, it's order of life, discipline, it's prayer, Daily work with your hands, asceticism like fasting and, uh, and disciplining your body, uh, stability. These guys commit to never leaving that monastery. Uh, community, place where you're accountable with other people. Hospitality, these monks would invite people in to eat their cheese and beer that they make. Um, and then balance, uh, having, having a balance. So they don't do anything that's overly harsh. They don't force these guys to do this, but they allow them to, uh, to begin to incorporate these disciplines in their life at a, at a, a slow manner as to not overwhelm them. Um, he, I'll just do this real quick. He lists, he has four chapters where he addresses specific issues uh, that he thinks these communities need to live in. Uh, one is education. Really cool. About three pages of this book is devoted to quotes from a guy named Martin Cothran. Uh, so I thought it was really cool. His basic position on education is that 
it's, it's either a classical school education uh, or if you can't get that, homeschool. No uh, public school, no Christian school. The basic idea is there is that those, these mainstream schools and even the Christian ones are training people how to get a job and they're training them secular skills that have no values involved. He said that is not how an education works. Education is about uh, the mind, but also about virtue. And if you do not include virtue, a system of virtue in your education, it's useless. Very cool, very similar to our thoughts on Mars Hill. Uh, next chapter was on work. Uh, he, he has a high regard for uh, work with the hands um, and working uh, in the trade fields. Uh, he also connects work with bringing the order of God into creation. He said, working for money, getting sucked into this mainstream, go up the ladder uh, lifestyle is, is, is harmful, uh, and all work needs to be connected to the pleasure of God and bringing his order into the earth. He then talks about sex. Um, and, and this is very significant to him in terms of the, the, the LGBT, the, the homosexual stuff that is coming through. He says that Christian communities have to pass on an understanding of the correct parameters for sex. He says sex is essential to communities, uh, and it must be communicated that it, that it is only proper within the marriage lifestyle. He also spends a considerable portion talking about pornography and how we need to battle against uh, be vigorous uh, against pornography. Uh, the last chapter uh, was on technology. And just to sum it up, basically, um, technology is not a neutral. Your, your iPhone is not a neutral um, means of getting information. The, the, the mode in which you access that information, Internet, phone, it shapes the way that you think. Uh, and he, he talks about how uh, we need to be very vigilant in, in protecting our children from these m means of gathering lots of data but not having a depth of understanding. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's good for now. Matt, maybe we'll do it now real quick. Did you, could you list maybe your caveats? thoughts you had while you were reading that were like, this is where I'm not sure I go, where Dreyer goes, or? So from, uh, yeah, this is just Matt Henderson. <laughs> from a political perspective, uh, I don't know that I would agree with the abandonment principle to the degree to which he does. Uh, and I, and, I, and obviously, there are many opinions on Trump, and I, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, I, I have, well, I don't want to say, I'm in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> no, I don't want to disrespect the president, but, you know, there are definite moral issues that I have with him, and I think that's fine to say about your president. But, uh, but in terms of, you know, I think this author wrote this in the spring of 17 in the rush, and as we're seeing this play out, a lot of our a lot of our values are actually being, uh, you know, promoted by this administration in a lot of very good ways. Oh, I, I actually read uh, Dreher had a blog post.
Yeah. Okay, there we go. Um, I saw a blog post by, by Roger two days ago in which he was, he was lauding the president. He said, yeah, I have my issues with the president, but I laud him. There was something that happened with religious freedom, uh, something that he spoke out on. And uh, so he pray. I mean, he's very consistent in saying that uh, religious freedom, even if it's Trump doing it, I am going to be 100% behind uh, that aspect of his uh, presidency. And I'll, I'll also say that um, one of the things that's sort of come out in the back and forths after the book, a lot of people read his book as saying, uh, okay, Christians, we should just, we should check out from the political sphere, we should stop voting, we should stop. And he's, he's been clear in sort of post-book interviews that that's, that's not what he means. He, he still thinks that we should go vote. He thinks that we should campaign for candidates that we support, that we should involve ourselves in the political process. Uh, I think the thesis is, is mainly, and, and uh, I actually I agree with Matt. I, I I wouldn't go this far, so I'm not defending Dreher, But uh, this is the how he defines it is that we should stop pinning our hopes on top level uh, politics and instead pin our hopes on bottom level uh, small communities uh, because he's just he's just very pessimistic about uh, the the real prospects of being able to secure long term. Uh, victories. I'm more optimistic than he is, though, so I, I, I think we actually have a shot on, on yeah. some questions. A, a good example of that is he has a brilliant section in the book where he talks about why, why are we fighting for the principles of marriage? Why are mainstream churches fighting for the theoretical principles of marriage when we're not cultivating them at home? When we don't have strong marriages that withstand divorce and... and that pass on the traditions of the, of, the, of the Christian worldview to our children. What's the point in that? And it, he, he talks about how it's only in communities, uh, small communities where we invest time and, and we cultivate uh, the good things um, uh, that, that you can even have an, a society or community that can underpin, that can... That can in a democracy sustain those political ideals, basically. Um, uh, he had an awesome section on, uh, on uh, so either, I think one of the reasons he says classical education over homeschooling is that it, it's a, it, it develops peers for your children. And he talks about how if you, um, if you lift up the family over and above the community and the church, uh, it's very devastating for your children because they don't have a peer system uh, in which um, they, you, they, those peers in the community can reinforce the values uh, that you hold and maybe shore up some values that you as a family don't really uh, succeed in. And, and I thought that was a very uh, a kind of a, a depth there that you don't usually see in these kind of books. Uh, he also mentioned, this is probably good too, that now that I've got more time, I'm just going to hold on to the mic here. <laughs> <clears throat> um, he mentioned the fact that the mainstream church is, is re really not any different than the, uh, the culture at large. And he, I can find the, the name, I thought it was very good. Um, he looked at some surveys and basically he said the religion of our culture is a materialistic therapeutic deism 
uh, materialistic therapeutic deism and basically most the beliefs of most uh, young Christians today is that yeah God exists uh, and he's good but he's not really that involved with us uh, and ultimately uh, he just wants us to be happy uh, and to be kind and good and if we are happy kind and good at the end of our lives we'll go to heaven um, and so um, he advocates that we move back towards a also a liturgical and a very um, tradition-based understanding of, of Christian values to combat that. I'll just mention real quick, the author that coined that phrase, materialistic therapeutic deism, is Christian Smith. I would encourage you, raise your hand if you've been in my worldview class and read that. If you've been in my worldview class, you've had to read about that. I would encourage actually everybody to get a little familiar with it because it's, he argues that it doesn't matter what your faith is in America, that when you strip everything away, Hindu, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, underneath, you're, you have this worldview, not a genuinely Christian or genuinely any other. Um, and it's worth grasping that. And you can find Christian Smith's article that sort of just summarizes the content. It's not long. And it's definitely worth understanding. I think it's moralistic. So or, what did I say? Materialistic. Oh, it's moralistic. It could just as easily be materialistic. No, it's, it's moralistic. It, yeah, moralistic therapeutic deism. All right, All right. Ben, take it away from Matt. <laughs> your, your, your book. Oh, okay. I don't know what do you think the best format is. You want to do questions? We should probably do questions at the end. Yeah, let's do questions at the end. So if you have questions about a particular book, uh, write them down. We'll get back to them. All right. Um, so this is, my book was uh, Ben Sass, The Vanishing of the American Adult. And the subtitle is Our Coming of Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of, of Self-Reliance. And it's interesting, I was hearing Matt, I haven't read The Benedict Option. I'm familiar with the book. Uh, and it's discussed a lot and talked about a lot. But uh, just hearing that, th there's so many of those themes are in this book. Uh, but, but what Ben Sass does, he, is a, he doesn't come from a, uh, a Christian perspective necessarily. He's, he's a, a, definitely a moral perspective, I would say, a, um, a religious perspective. But what he is looking at is uh, just the flow of history. He is a uh, historian kind of by trade. He has a Ph.D. in history. He now serves as a senator. He's one of the senators from Nebraska, a U.S. senator. And uh, he looks at all these things, and it's, it's interesting. He comes to a lot of the same conclusions. He sees a lot of the same things wrong, uh, but probably for different, a little bit of different reasons than um, Rod Dreher. But it's interesting to see, and I think you'll hear it when Dan talks about the Esalen book, people from all different traditions and backgrounds are seeing the same symptoms and saying that we are, our, our, the, the fabric of our society is unraveling. Um, and it hits different people in different ways. So what this book focuses on is just the, the plague of perpetual adolescence that is happening in, in my generation. I think it's the millennials you know, and there's so many jokes about millennials. They're lazy. They, they make bad employees. And he really dives deep into that phenomenon. Um, so th there's two parts to this book. And the first part is three chapters that identify the problem and really just look at, all right, what is the problem right now? And what are some probable causes for that? Um, 
so he looks at kind of some of the sources of our, our coming-of-age crisis. So how do we get to this place? And he, he starts back, you know, during, uh, it basically happened this century, uh, the industrialization, um, the, the reforms in education, the shift to progressive education with John Dewey. Um, but he says, basically, we have a generation of citizens who have no interest in being good citizens uh, or even fully functioning adults. They are just content to live off the surplus. And this is a, obviously a dangerous thing in a democracy where it requires the full participation. And active participation and informed and intelligent, mature participation of, of its citizens. Um, an adult being someone who is self-reliant, self-disciplined, and self-controlled, but also understands their duty to the community in which they live and performs that duty. And he says, there's a great quote, I think I'll read, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it, but the idea that if you're not self-controlled or self-disciplined, there's, there's going to be control and there's going to be discipline. But in America, without, we have the opportunity to be self-controlled and self-disciplined rather than to have a government control us and discipline us according to whatever end it seems, uh, it seems good to the, the government. Big brother, okay. So, uh, like I said, he is a, he is a senator. Uh, he, he studies history. And so the first part of the book, he identifies all that. And it's, it, this is a great book. I can't, you know, I can't give you all the great nuggets. I, I recommend this book, and it's, it's very accessible, too. You know, it's not heady. It's very practical. Um, I think anyone in, in, in this room could, could read this and, and uh, really get a lot out of it. But he, he avoids, like Dreher, he avoids advocating change at the policy level. He's not talking about, all right, we need to change education, we need to change all this. He says, because none of this stuff can change from the top down. Uh, so that's one similarity that he has with Dreher. He says this, this happens when parents uh, understand that they need to, to help their kids grow out of, come of age, out of this period of, a, of adolescence. Um, and so he says that at, at no point in history has adolescence meant what it means in, in America. Adolescence has always been the time between childhood where you're fully dependent and, the, and, and adulthood when you are independent and you function, you, you take care of you and yours. And that responsibility uh, falls to you and you uphold it. Uh, so there's a transition period, but he says this transition period has become indefinite. There's no end in sight. All right. Uh, so his, his suggestions, I, I think, are good. There's a lot of truth to them. They're very practical suggestions. He gives five suggestions uh, to combat this coming-of-age crisis. And one is uh, to flee age segregation. He says our school system is, such that, is set up such that the majority of, of a child's life is spent with people their own age. And this blinds you to the ebbs and flows of life. This blinds you to the mortality of your own body, uh, the fact that you are born, and the fact that you die. And so he says we need to, to get our kids around infants and elderly uh, and everything in between. Uh, so the, then the second thing he advocates is embracing work pain. And 
he gives some interesting stories about like his grandma on the farm in, in Nebraska. She, she would tell stories about uh, being out on a tractor and she had just had a, a child and she rigged up a bassinet to go on the tractor while she was out in the field. And she, but the thing he says is that she told the story and was like, okay, so why is that a big deal? You know, why, why do, and he had to like, he kept asking her these stories. He's like, I had to coax these stories out of her. She wasn't going around and being like, oh yeah, we work hard back in my day. It was just how you did it, and it was assumed. And he said, we've come so far from, from that idea in work. And so we need, to, um, we need to teach our kids to work and to hurt and to push through the hurt and to keep working. And everyone who's developed a work ethic can point to that job or that summer or that afternoon on Patrick Higginbotham's farm uh, where they just, it was, it was hell, and they pushed through it, and, and they learned something. So that, that is, it's, it's crucial to being a good citizen. You have to understand what it means to push through and, and work to pain and through the pain. Uh, and then the third thing is to consume less. Consume less. And that speaks for itself. Um, the, an, an adult is, prime, is, is marked by their production, their net value to the community is, is one of production rather than consumption. They add to places where they go rather than take from. And uh, producers rather than consumers is the end goal. Um, the fourth thing, no, yeah, fourth thing is, uh, he says travel. But he doesn't mean, you know, tourism. Uh, he means get out, get into uncomfortable places and experience uh, cultures other than your own. And he says, travel and travel light. Learn how to travel in a backpack. That's one thing he says. Take, take your kids and, and try and, and spend a week uh, just with what you can fit in a backpack. Uh, okay, then the second, the uh, fifth thing would be uh, read. <laughs> become truly literate. He says, read to become truly literate. And he says, this is, the, this is the same as traveling, except it's, you know, when you read different perspectives, when you, when you encounter different uh, cultures and different literatures, uh, you are getting outside of yourself. You're expanding your view of what it means to be human. And then, did I say there's five things? There's six. There's six. The final thing is, is make, an, make America an idea again. To teach kids what what the American experiment is and why it's exceptional, why it's remarkable. Um, rather than, uh, you know, hang on to this sort of 60s counterculture, skeptical of anything that, that you know, would be seeking to, to uphold the American dream or the American experiment. Uh, we need to teach our kids why it's, why it's uh, such a profound and, and incredible uh, opportunity that we have. Um, so, he has those suggested programs that we, you know, implement in our kids' lives, and it very much resonates with the way that we uh, view child training and, and maturing in our, in our community here. Um, we have, you know, we emphasize the father's role in the family, that you are responsible to bring your kids from immaturity to maturity, and that is the role of the father. He needs to lead out in that process. Um, we don't have youth group. 
we are allergic to anything that could be even remotely considered like passing the buck to the institution to train my children rather than, than me as a parent. Um, the way we do discipleship, you know, we, dis- we, we are not a, um, a place to come and consume spirituality. We're a place to come and learn how to give yourself, to lay your life down, uh, to come into maturity. And that's what all of our discipleship points to. You know, our discipleship track, it ends in being a home group leader <laughs> for most people. Right? That's what we're, you, you need to become a, a functioning member of, of the society. Homeschooling, right? We, we do homeschooling. Uh, we don't entrust our kids. One of the things that he points to a lot is that uh, there's, this, I, there's this myth that, that education is the same as schooling. And we've become ex- obsessed with schooling in America. And we throw tons and tons of money at school with the assumption that that is actually educating our children. Um, and so we, we just dump all sorts of money into this failing institution called school and education. Uh, the noble end that it is is just going totally neglected. Um, the way we do child training, we, we, I mean, I've heard Chad talk so much about the, the, we need to train our kids like the rulers that they are going to be. They are going to rule and reign. And so we need to be able to present them as responsible uh, leaders uh, to society. We hold marriage in high esteem. We uphold biblical gender roles. Um, we embrace hard work. You know, all these things that, that do mark our community, they, they are all what he's talking about. And we've been, I think these have marked our community for its entire existence. I haven't been around for the whole thing, but I can imagine that 40 years ago, the goal of child training was exactly the same as it is now. And the way that we were... Um, the end goal that we saw. All right. Um, I want to read this about reading to become truly literate, because I think there's this idea sometimes, even with our own, within our own community, that uh, reading is just another choice of pastime. So I, I, want, I want to hold this uh, up to you. Becoming truly literate is a choice. Reading done well is not a passive activity like sitting in front of a screen. It requires a degree of attention, engagement, and active questioning of which most of our children currently have a deficit. That our emerging adults take so little interest in reading today is not just sad for them. It's also a threat to the idea of democracy, which has long assumed the ability to read and desire to read. It is not only the content of a book that changes you, but the shared community with those who have read it. Books create communities here and now, as well as across time. That's that's profound to me, Um, especially since we are a community formed around a book, right? Books create communities. And so... Reading to become truly literate, we are actually reading to be able to interact with the Word of God in a way that it can change us and shape us into a community in the way that it needs to. So if we don't become truly literate in the way that he's talking about, it's not just that we're going to miss out on the great conversation of Western culture. It's that we, we will miss out on being able to allow this book to shape us in the way that it needs to. Um, does that make sense? I, I thought that was an important point for us. And we are spending a lot of time and energy at Mars Hill uh, to cultivate this idea of 
not, not transmitting a bunch of content, but to create that desire and ability to read and read well in a way that, in a way that shapes you, it shapes your soul. Um, okay, so that was one thing that I wanted to, to just underline. If I could pop in on yeah. that real quick. If you look at the data on the number of adults in every given year that have read a book that they didn't have to read, it's shockingly low, and it gets lower in every subsequent generation, especially what they call iGen, kids who grew up with phones. And just to make the point, if we are to be a people who are a people of that book, and we don't know how, not to read the words to get the information, but to really engage with what we read, woe betide us. Yeah. Um, so I think I would like to underscore that point, too, is learning to read is not learning the words on the page, it's learning to humble yourself before something and learn from it and receive from it. So just to unders double underscore that point. Yeah. So I, I want to take two minutes and, and just read something from the chapter called Make, Idea Make America an Idea Again, because uh, this, this really gets at the heart of, of what he's saying. And then I, I'll end with this. And you can go. Uh, he says, I am an optimist, and I believe that America's best days lie ahead. So he's, I guess he's different than Dreher in that, in that regard. Our Constitution has given us powerful institutions whose very power stems from the fact that they are self-limiting, allowing us the liberty and agency to pursue our dreams. But I'd be lying if I didn't acknowledge concerns about three trends. Number one, the accelerating technologies that are quite simply going to make a lot of our current jobs disappear. Number two, the coming of age crisis that has become the central subject of this book which I believe has resulted in a generation of kids who will have a tough time dealing with number one, that is the rapidly changing nature of work and, and jobs, not to mention playing their roles as active, engaged citizens. And number three, the fact that in times of economic disruption, we invariably see the rise of people who offer quick fixes, nativists' campaigns, and more centralized power as a way out. We are going to need America's children to rise to their best in the years to come because a nation of adult children cannot be a nation of self-governing people. A plea for self-discipline and self-control is the one and only dignified alternative to discipline and control from without. For in this broken world of lawless souls, there will be control. There will be government. Order-seeking and security-seeking people as well as those in search of power for their own purposes, will invariably seek to hold back the chaos of the world. The question is whether people will control themselves or submit to the control of another. Now, this is interesting for us as Christians because we submit to the control of another, uh, but it's not a worldly institution of government. It's, it's the good king himself. But we want to be free from our government to be able to submit to the control of that king. A republic is the only form of government, the only social arrangement that seeks to make individuals preeminent in their own self-control and own self-possession. A republic is thus at once liberating and scary, for it requires and assumes, it both requires and assumes adults, not subjects. And this is a rare state of affairs in political history. Children do not govern themselves, of course. They don't know how to. They have, taught, they have to be taught and they have to learn self-governance. In a healthy society, they migrate from a phase of parental control to partial self-control and then to full independence. 
these developmental and transitional phases should be periods when they are thought of as little citizens, people on the way to becoming self-controlled. We don't think this way today. Well-functioning citizens share a collective memory of how and why and toward what ends our polity came to be. Adult citizenship presumes a substantial level of self-awareness and impulse control. It knows both rights and duties. Sadly, the United States today suffers from a widespread collective amnesia. As a result, many Americans coming of age today don't understand the country they're inheriting. They've not heard our story, and thus many of them don't even know what they don't know. The sad part is uh, most of my college students uh, probably couldn't follow Ben reading those couple paragraphs because they don't, they don't read. Um, and and that's, so it's, it's exactly right. Um, I, I asked Martin uh, Cothran what he thought of the Dreher book, and he said, well, um, I liked the parts that had quotation marks around <laughs> words that I said. <laughs> and that's Martin for you. So. Um, uh, I, before I talk about the Esselin book, I wanted to make one comment about sort of the way some of this is being framed. Um, all through a lot of the uh, review um, articles that I, I read and whatnot, people are saying there's this recent spate of books, a recent flood of books uh, that's uh, saying these things. Um, but I don't, I don't think the, that that's true. I don't think that it's suddenly that there's a bunch of these books uh, out there. I've been, I've been reading books about uh, the decline of American culture, the decline of American thought, the decline of Western civilization uh, for, for a long time. Uh, I remember as a kid, you know, having these kinds of conversations with my dad, you know, he, he would talk to me about Newt Gingrich and Pat Buchanan and whatnot. And uh, you can, I, one of my favorite books is uh, Richard Weaver wrote a book back in the 50s and he famously starts the book uh, with the sentence, this is another book about the collapse of Western civilization. Uh, so already in the 50s, you know, people had been, been saying these things uh, for a long time. And not because, uh, oh, that's what old people always say. You know, once you get old, you, you look around and you think kids these days. Um, I think they've been saying it for a while because the collapse is a long, slow, multi-generational deterioration of, of civilization. What's new okay, is not that people are suddenly writing books about this, but that people are suddenly reading them. Um, the, the new thing is that uh, Dreher's book hit the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, I don't think Richard Weaver's book hit the, hit the bestseller list. Okay, um, and when I went, uh, when that was announced that, uh, that the Benedict Option was on the New York Times bestseller list, I went and I looked at the, at the bestseller list, and seven out of the ten books for that week on the New York Times bestseller list were conservative-themed books, okay? Um, the, the patriotic books, pro-gun books, um, <laughs> pro-American uh, you know, veteran books, that, that kind of thing, right? The art um, of the deal. So what I think is actually happening is not that scholars, thinkers, people who are reflecting on culture are suddenly realizing, oh my gosh, we made gay marriage legal, freak out, write books about it. They've been writing these books for a while. Um, I think what's happening is that the general sort of American populace 
is, is, is realizing, oh, hey, we just made gay marriage legal. Freak out. <laughs> What's going on? Read what these guys have been saying for, for a while. Um, so my book is, is Anthony Esselin's Out of the Ashes. Uh, so Esselin is a uh, classic tradcon. Um, he is a uh, traditional Catholic, um, lifelong cradle Catholic, uh, and of a very traditional stripe. Um, doesn't like the current pope, okay. Um, he comes from an Italian family. Uh, I think he grew up in New York, okay. Um, and to me, the uh, key contribution of his book, in a lot of places he says many of the same things. He says the same things about work. He says the same things about sexuality and the family as, as, as Dreher. Um, but the key thing that he's got going on is a concern for beauty, um, and I think that's the main thing that our community could stand to learn something uh, from him. So I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. Also, uh, uh, Eslin is, while, while he's, kind of a, he's kind of a crank, all right, uh, but he, he's, he's also very hopeful, and he has very good reasons for being hopeful. Uh, one of the key things that he points out is that we actually have a very, very good situation right now because of technology, because of wealth, for uh, having a wonderful culture, any culture that we want in our community, okay? Never before uh, in the history of humanity have uh, works of literature been so easily accessible, okay? A hundred years ago, people would have given their right arm to have access to all the books that you can have access to for free on your Kindle or just, you know, go Google Books. Boom. You have, you have, a, you have a text there. Our libraries are fantastic. Um, they're well-funded. Uh, we're also so rich that we can afford. Um, he, he talks about music Okay, a uh, hundred years ago, somebody in, uh, that was leading uh, a church choir group, uh, you couldn't have had access to just any sheet music from any composer that you want just at your fingertips right away. It would have been hard to, hard to get, okay? Yet, so we have more books available now t today than we ever have, but nobody's reading. What the heck? Uh, we have more sheet music available, but our church music culture, our worship culture, is just getting shallower and shallower and shallower. The songs are getting lamer and lamer and lamer every year, right? And even y'all who are not, uh, you know, liturgically minded or, or music nerds notice that, right? Um, just, just listen to K-Love. Uh, this would be an interesting uh, experiment. Record 30 minutes of K-Love this year and then wait three years and record 30 minutes of K-Love, you know, in three years, four years, five years, and compare the, the two recordings, okay? Uh, they will, uh, I will, I'll bet money. Who wants to, who wants to take a bet? <laughs> do, do we believe in betting? Is that, is that, uh, <laughs> take a bet that it will get uh, more lame and more shallow, uh, and less, even from an artistic perspective, uh, you know, less complicated chords, uh, less complicated, uh, you know, musical, what, whatever. Okay. Um, he points out that 
uh, we have greater access now to understanding our own constitution, our own history, uh, our own where we came from and, and the political principles, the scholarship on that stuff uh, is better than it's ever been. There's more reflection and it's easy to, get, to access um, and we have the time and the leisure to, to get it and yet we're more ignorant of how our own constitution works than we've ever been. Um, just get into a conversation with, with some random person about the Electoral College. Um, the, the ignorance level is shocking. Um, what's, what's the Electrical College? <laughs> yeah, the Electrical College, it's, um, it's, it's how we get our president. The um, people, yeah, the engineers pick the president, didn't you know? And it's really bad because we all know that uh, Russian engineers, yeah. The Illuminati. Yeah. It's the Illuminati, definitely. Yeah. Oprah. Yeah. Is Oprah in the Illuminati? <laughs> yeah, so, so his point of hope and his, uh, his solution to this state of affairs is just start. Just start. There's nothing stopping you. Right? We have access to all this awesome stuff. Just start using it. Right? Just start singing better songs. Just start reading the books that are there right? Um, just start educating your children, you know? And, and fortunately, I think when I, when I read all this stuff, I got excited because uh, I, I thought, hey, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing the very thing uh, that, that he's saying. Don't sit around and, uh, you know, just moan and groan about how bad society is while you go right along with it and, you know, uh, binge on, on YouTube, Okay. Which I'm guilty of. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just start. Just just start doing the things that that are valuable and good. That's that's his his solution, and he's hopeful about that because um, he in the very beginning of the book he has this great metaphor that uh, we're we're it's like we're living in this beautiful uh, Downton Abbey type uh, mansion. Okay. Uh, and we've got three rooms just full of leather-bound books. And we've got another room over here with all the instruments you could ever want. And we've got another room over here with just art. And we've got all, and we've got a, we've got a greenhouse. That's, but it's all broken down and dusty. And nobody's been using it for three generations. And some of the, the, the piano's out of tune. And... And all the beautiful furniture is just covered up with, with sheets. And, and we all kind of live in this one room where we don't clean it up ever. And so there's just like food all over the ground and it's gross, right? And so he, he says, look, that's not a bad situation. That's a great situation, right? Just go into the other rooms and dust them off, clean them up. Start, start using the stuff that you have, you know, start building beautiful churches. Um, okay, so, so cycle back around to the beauty thing. Um, I think he's more concerned uh, than the other authors here um, with not just politics and the political situation, um, but culture more broadly conceived uh, and the way that uh, we seem to be getting shallower and uglier every year. Um, and he, he's uh, advocating a return to caring about beauty. Um, and I think that that's something that our, our community could could stand to grow in a little bit 
a little bit more. I think most people, when they come into LCF, uh, or not the CF churches, because it's all of us together, right? Um, They care about truth. We're very good on truth. You need to learn what's true and align yourself with the truth and stop believing lies. We also care a lot about goodness, and I think just about anybody that comes into uh, the CF churches, they learn very quickly, they're discipled into caring about, no, that's evil. You need to stop doing that. That's sin. Okay? Um, But traditionally, there have been three uh, supreme values. In in, uh, philosophy, we call them the transcendent values, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, And I... I don't know that that's really part of our, our discipleship. We don't, we don't teach people, you should start caring about beauty. Uh, this, this way of doing things, that's, it's not evil. It's not exactly a lie, but it's ugly, right? Um, and I, th- I think we could, uh, we could uh, resurrect that a little bit. We could breathe some, some life into that. And I think our, uh, our Mars Hill kids... Uh, are starting to, to get it. I see a lot of, uh, especially the people who have graduated in the last maybe three or four years, they have a concern for, for beauty, for real beauty. Not just beauty in the eye of the beholder, but real beauty. Okay? Um, and I think as a church we could, we could stand to, to hear that message uh, uh, a little bit and try to make some good music, try to make some, uh, some beautiful churches, try to make some, I don't know, do beautiful things. <laughs> so our our uh, our ballet happens. Yeah, the ballet uh, is a good good sign. The week leading into Christmas every year. No, <laughs> no, no. Actually, I was I I I was going to mention that that was uh, and I knew I was forgetting something. Uh, I think our our ballet and uh, the Mars Hill Forum too uh, is a sign that that we are sort of turning in that direction. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not don't don't hear me as like I'm blaming y'all for man you guys are really ugly. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I think what's what's gone on from my perspective is that you know when you're when you're first setting up a community, you gotta care a lot more about truth and goodness because that's the stuff that will just. I mean, if you're living a lie uh, or you're living in in flagrant moral evil, you, your community is just gonna fall apart. You can afford to um, you know hold church with you know, whatever, in a, in, a, in a barn with rusty chairs or whatever, or in a, you know, uh, gym that you've, you've redone. Um, right? That's fine. That's fine. And, and, and that's, that's good. Uh, beauty is sort of the last of the values to emerge on the cultural scene uh, because it requires uh, some sophistication and some levels of culture and economy and resources to already be there before you can start worrying about, yeah, but does it look good, you know? Um, and so I think now we're, we're reaching that level of community um, life where we can seriously put on an awesome ballet. Hats off right? to Sarah. Yeah, Just yeah, right, amen, amen. That's exactly, that's exactly the kind of thing uh, that I'm talking about. Right is doing that, and I, I just I'd like to see some more people uh, hear the call that that Sarah's heard, right? Which is, hey, you know, I'm going to really give myself to uh, making something something beautiful uh, because beauty beauty preaches. That's one of the points that uh, that Esalen makes in the book is that um, p- people are drawn to the church 
because of truth, yes. They hear something and they know it's true because of goodness, yes. But they're also drawn to the church because of beauty. Uh, and I think many people we will see over the years are going to be drawn uh, to the CF churches or just to God, maybe to, the, to, to another church, because they went to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe ballet. Yep. Weren't you drawn to the church because of beauty? Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen that girl again, by the way. I'll just add in there, um, I like what Dan's saying. Uh, in the Benedict option, there's a section where um, he talks about evangelizing through beauty and goodness. And I immediately th- thought of the ballet as well, but he, he talks about cultivating um, art, music, um, intelligence. And, and when you look at this from a Catholic perspective and you think about their churches compared to the churches that we meet in, uh, I think it's a good example of the contrast there. I will say this though. So he, so uh, in, in this, in his concept of community, it's the, it's the beauty and the art and the goodness that, that would be the tool of evangelism. One thing that I noted that was missing is the, the evangelistic approach of being inspired by the Holy Spirit and going out into the community and letting the power of God and the power of the gospel uh, communicate. And I think that's a, maybe a, one of the differences between the traditional liturgical um, Catholic kind of viewpoint of evangelism and, and um, the, I don't know, the Jesus people kind of movement that was kind of going when our church was established, where uh, we we may not be very good at um, you know writing poetry, but we're pretty good at getting out and you know declaring the gospel. Now I don't think it's an either or, but I think it's a balance of both. And I think Dan's exactly right. As we as we um, become more sophisticated as a community. Um, I think it's essential that we develop these things, and it's going to be a huge um, uh, draw to people. But I think there's a trap there as well that you obviously see with Catholic and and those kind of communities that fell into a introspective uh, emphasis on beauty. I'll just say that as kind of a yeah. So uh, I would recommend a short article, a short speech called "How to Win the Culture War" by Peter Kreeft. It's amen to um, that. Yeah. I would recommend it to everybody. He's a philosophy professor in Boston, and I'm just going to connect this to what Matt says. He says, listen, yes, we're having a culture war. He says, in a war, you need to know your enemies. And he says, our enemies are not Muslims. They're not homosexual agenda people. They're not any of those people. Our enemies are demons and ourselves, right? The spiritual forces arrayed against the kingdom of God and those forces at work in our own lives. When you know that that's your enemy, it changes things. And he says the answer, the way to win the culture war, is to be a saint. And to translate that to our terms, to become more and more like Christ, and if I could just connect that with what Matt's saying and what Dan's saying, that's ultimately the source of beauty. There's a beautiful, you can make a beautiful meal, you can make a beautiful cake, you can make a beautiful symphony, you can also make a beautiful life. Um, and again, if we don't have the, the image of Christ growing in us, we have nothing to offer. Uh, and I believe that is the source of all the beauty that Esalen talks about ultimately, seasoning culture for hundreds of years. So anyway, um, just an amen to those things. 
Um, I think we're supposed to stop at 10.30. I'm going to keep us going for 15 minutes. I'll try to be brief on my, uh, what I present, and then we'll do some uh, comment and question. So my, um, what I want to present is a speech by Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I love to say that. This guy <laughs> was the chief of all of the um, synagogues, Jewish synagogues in England for like 22 years. And he gave a speech uh, for uh, First Things back in 2013. And if I would summarize it, I would maybe say this is the Jeremiah option. Okay, by the way, if you want to keep up with memes, ben the Benedict option has spawned all these memes. And everybody's writing the, you know, the Bible option, the, the Jesus option. The, they're, they're all doing options. <laughs> well, I'm with Paul. <laughs> right, right. I'm with, yeah. yeah. Um, at any rate, Yeah. At any rate, let me, let me just try to summarize this. The, the essay is called On Creative Minorities, and uh, he makes the point that Israel went into exile, and there is no more, other than Jesus' death, there's no more greater loss in the Bible than when Israel went into exile. All right, consider their identity was tied to the land, their identity was tied to the temple, um, their identity was tied to all those things that God had promised and considered they were, they were slaves in a foreign land away from the temple of God. They had nothing. Look at Psalm 137. All right? That's the psalm, by the way, that says, blessed are they that smash their babies against the rocks. Why does it say that? Because they had just entered into exile. Um, and Rabbi Sachs says, well, you know, it's very interesting if you look at that context because Jeremiah is not necessarily known for being uh, a source of positive psychology and optimism, but actually the prophecy that he gives in his book gave birth to the Jews contributing to society for 26 centuries since then, all right? Uh, and so he, he points out several things. You know, they go into exile... Um, and they learned a couple of things. Number one, they learned God could be accessed anywhere, right? Ezekiel has that vision of the presence of God, that awesome vision in the beginning of Ezekiel. That's precisely all the things that the temple were pointing to he saw there in Babylon, all right? And it changed Jews' understanding, right? He's not just tied to the land. The second thing is that not only are they in captivity, but this is the first time in history... You know, all the nations had gods. You went into captivity, you adopted other gods. And they saw their gods as protecting them. This is the first time in history that God sent his people into exile. Right? That he sovereignly allowed this situation where they were at the lowest low. He sent them there. What did that mean? How did that change the way they were supposed to think about him? And then third, and this is perhaps most important, God was not breaking his covenant with them. Sending them into exile was a part of the covenant. Sending them into a situation in which uh, they had nothing and no recourse, that was precisely his love and his faithfulness to them. So, again, he points out that out of this context, um, again, you know, I, I like to, I think this is a great speech because it gives a little bit longer perspective. You know, Dan makes the point that we've been talking about this for a long time. I think you could argue that Jews have been talking about the situation of being on the outside of culture for 2,600 years. Mm -hmm. We might have a few things to learn from them. Uh, and this is precisely what uh, Rabbi Sachs has to say. So he makes the point that 
Jews went into exile, and they, he says they became creative minorities. The point there is they're a minority. They're not in power. But nonetheless, they influenced culture for hundreds and thousands of years, despite the fact that they were not in power. And, you know, people have made the point, and I think you could make an argument for the existence of God based on the history of the Jewish people alone. The fact that they have survived the fact that they have brought what they have to uh, the world in various fields, uh, is an, and the fact that they have been so persecuted throughout all that time, nonetheless, they have done what they have done. I think you could make an argument for God just from that alone. So he points out that they've been um, creative in three ways. Number one, internally. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Babylonian Talmud, but in exile in Babylon, Israel said, okay, we don't have the temple. What do we have? Well, we have the Torah. And they sat down and they, it's hard to say they compiled, but there's massive volumes of commentary on the Torah. And Jews, um, there was recently, a couple years ago, there was 100,000 Jews that committed to studying one page of the Babylonian Talmud every day. It would take them seven years to finish it. And recently, 100,000 Jews just finished that up in New York. And it was really funny because they had, you know, they, they separate male and female in their worship. They had this giant coliseum separated male and female <laughs> for all these people that had just finished that. Anyway, the point is they go into captivity and not, they don't despair, but they create. They created that internally. Um, you know, Rabbi Sachs points out the number of Jews throughout history. If you just consider the last 150 years, the number of Jews who have been at the forefront of physics, music, science, philosophy, sometimes in negative ways. I mean, he points out some of the, some of the leaders of uh, the modern worldview have been Jews, right? But the point is um, they've contributed. Um, They've also, well, so at any rate, he, he just makes the case that the fact that they went into the worst possible situation, yet they continued to contribute to society, and uh, he, he says that it's still possible to do so. So he, he says it this way, you can, you can be on the outs, you can be not a part of the mainline culture, you can be out of power, retain your identity, live your faith faithfully, and influence culture. And I think this resonates with all of what these guys are saying. Uh, and I think it resonates with what we have been trying to be as churches. Uh, we know we're not in power. We know we're not in necessarily the majority. But we believe we can continue uh, to salt our culture and that that's our role. Uh, he says that there have been three responses. And I think you can see this in Christian responses. There have been, excuse me, four responses that you can have to a situation like that. One response is just accommodation, right? You just begin to go along with the culture. Uh, the second response is sort of militantly fighting, right? And I think in Jesus' day, that model was the, those who were taking up the sword to try to kick out Rome. Um, the next response is total withdrawal. Uh, and again, some people are accusing Dreyer of that. I don't know that he's guilty of that, but just total withdrawal into your little enclave, your little ghetto, and you just do your own thing. And there have been examples of that all through history. But he says the last challenge or the last and the best response, the response that God commanded to the Jews was to be a minority but to influence the culture in which they're in. And let me just read this Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah 29.5. 
Build ye houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that they may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. Consider how... So he said, listen, you are not going to go back to your land soon. You are not going to be back in power soon. And even, by the way, when they went back to their own land, they weren't in power in the sense that they had been before. They were not a sovereign nation. They continued to be under pagan powers. But... Look at Daniel and what he contributes to his culture. All right, look at all of the prophets of the Babylonian exile. Um, one of the things that touched me about this book, and again, to broaden the perspective even a little bit more, is that Rabbi Sachs centers on, he draws attention to three declines or three situations in the world that are worth commenting on. The first is the decline of Christianity in the Middle East in particular. Now that a Jewish rabbi, he says, I, he, sa he calls this um, the equivalent of a religious ethnic cleansing of the Middle East. Um, and I think this is significant that a Jewish rabbi can equate what's going on to Christians in the Middle East to an ethnic cleansing. Right? There's a certain poignancy and authority to that observation. So just uh, he, he points out that as recently as about 20 years ago, Christians made up 20% of the Middle East. Today, they make up 4%. That's kind of staggering. Um, he also points out that um, for the last 10 years, estimates are that 90,000 Christians a year for the last 10 years have been killed because of the faith. So in 10 years, approaching a million persecuted for the faith. The Jewish rabbis drawing attention to that, I think, is, is pretty significant. The other thing he draws attention to, and I think uh, we should be concerned about this broadly, is the rise of anti-Semitism uh, in Europe and in America, the rise of Holocaust denial um, and animosity toward the state of Israel. Uh, these are all bad signs that he sees. Uh, and then the last thing he mentions is the decline of marriage and the sanctity of life. All right, He's talking about things like abortion, uh, the attacks against traditional marriage, uh, all of those things are things to be gravely concerned about. But ultimately, Rabbi Sachs is, like these guys, totally optimistic. All right? He's totally optimistic. Um, and I want to quote, uh, there's a G.K. Chesterton quote here that comes from his book, The Everlasting Man, that's really great. And I think it, it reflects um, Rabbi Sachs' view. Can we reverse the decline. He says, yes, this is what Chesterton says. Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. So just that sense that ultimately our hope in the future of the church, the future of our country, the future of our influence on the world comes from God who is the God of the resurrection. Amen. Uh, and we don't, we, we, it is a lack of faith to be pessimistic, right? We have to be faithful. We have to be willing to pay the prices we might have to pay. Um, and if there's one thing that I would commend out of this article is, is that I think we need to draw close to our allies, other Christians of all stripes, 
just that we learn from and that we humbly pray for and love and faithful Jews. Um, and uh, I think that they are our allies long term and that we need, to, we need to know our distinctives and guard our distinctives and promote our distinctives and celebrate them, but we also need to humbly uh, relate to and pray for our brethren, um, Jewish and Christian. And I think um, just realizing that we're a part of a much deeper thing that God is doing. Um, all right, so let's take, oh, let's take some time for comments and questions. Um, so I want to open the floor to both comments and questions, and let's be very quick if you have any um, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on to our next session. We have one session before lunch, is that right? I, I think we got plenty of time. I think we can take 15 minutes. Um, and we will take a restroom break here in about 15 minutes. But let's, let's uh, comments from anywhere. Bill. Yeah. So Bill's asking about the moralistic therapeutic deism. Again, I'll, we'll make available a link to the article that summarizes this. He talks about um, five points. There's a God. He made the world. Um, let's see if I can pull out all the points. Um, he basically wants everybody to be happy. Okay? Um, he doesn't get particularly involved except when you need something. Um, Everybody, all good people go to heaven when they die. And there's one more point. Does anybody happen to remember the, uh, the, There's basically one moral command, and it's be nice. Oh, yeah. There's basically one moral command. All religions teach it, don't be a jerk. Okay? Uh, and I would just say it's a great exercise. I would commend everybody to, to everybody this exercise. Sit down with those five points and consider, okay, what does the Bible really say to these things? Uh, yeah. There's a creator, and he is keenly interested in the world. And the reason it goes on is because he sustains it by the word of his power. And he loves it and has never forsaken it. Uh, he is not a remote God. He is very involved. Um, many, many good people will go to hell when they die. Or there are no good people on conventional terms. Uh, he only gets involved. No, he wants to be involved. Look at Israel. Look at the Levitical code. He was interested in every detail of their lives, and the gospel doesn't lessen that. It heightens that. Uh, so at any rate, I, I would just say, number one, read the article. Number two, just stop and think through what we would say to each one of those things, and, and in particular, what Christ and his identity and his mission would speak to each one of those things. Not only is he not that involved, he's so involved that he took on human nature to show us what human life was meant to look like. Um, I would, yeah, he, Bill's question was, how do you, what, what's the evangelistic approach to that? And I would say they've, they've responded to a gospel, uh, but it's not the gospel of the Bible. And so to know the difference between the gospel that leads to moralistic therapeutic deism and the actual gospel that John came preaching and Jesus came preaching and, and told his disciples to preach, to know the gospel and to faithfully declare it, I think is the evangelistic approach. And that's basically what Chad's saying, to understand what it is that, what is the call of God. 
uh, to sinners. Yeah. Here's one thing I'll say. In, in my experience, um, there's a big difference between MTDers who identify as Christians and MTDers who don't. Um, and and I think it it matters uh, if they think that they're Christians, but underneath they have the MTD philosophy. Um, I've found that often just sort of bringing them around and exposing them to real Christianity and just listening to one of Billy's sermons, you know, uh, it, it doesn't take very long before they wake up and be like, oh, this is not what I heard in church growing up. This is very different. Uh, and from there, it's pretty easy to open up a conversation. Yeah, this, you know, that's because you not actually really a Christian. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you, you've accepted a philosophy of the age, you know. Um, I think it's much harder with um, people who have accepted this kind of, yeah, I'm spiritual but not religious. I believe in God. I think everybody should be nice. I probably believe in life after death. This is like half of the kids in my uh, Philosophy 100 uh, class because these, these questions come up. But, if, but they don't go to church. They wouldn't say that they're a Christian. They're under the impression that Christians are awful because they cause the crusades and are oppressors and uh, they're all white or something, um, which is statistically not true. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, those people, um, I think you have to evangelize them just like you would evangelize um, a, a total non-believer. Uh, you'd preach the gospel, share with them what the, the truth and, and take it on case by case. Also, step one in that process of evangelizing MTDers is you have to know what the heck you're talking about yourself first. If you don't know what you're talking about, uh, you're going to have a really hard time having a conversation with those people. Uh, so uh, you, you've got, this was Chad's encouragement, you've got to know what the Bible actually says and you've got to know what we believe, that we're not deists. Why aren't we deists? Because we do believe that God is keenly interested in, in his creation. Uh, that God does want you to be happy, sort of, but he wants a lot more than that besides. Um, so you've got you've to actually have your beliefs straight first before you can have that conversation. I thought you were saying MTVers, but that's... Uh, it's no, probably MTDers. a common origin. I yeah. think they both come from demons. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, what else? Well, MT what? MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. It's a... Uh, He's shortening that. Yeah, that reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get it by hanging out with intellectuals. <laughs> and pronounce it. I got Chris and then Kelly. Chris. Just because I think more and more in our society, uh, you talked about measuring an adult by the amount that they produce. Even uh, production is being turned into almost a consumerism when you have uh, things like YouTube channels, Twitch TV, uh, to some degree even Etsy or things like that that are uh, seen yeah. as full-time jobs where your production is someone else's consumerism. Um, mm -hmm. And... The, the production isn't even necessarily things of value, and I, I think that's really important to study because you're, it's almost uh, falling into a trap or skirting the line. Like, yeah, by one sense, you're being rewarded 
but the uh, output of your effort is uh, not being taken into consideration. It's just, oh, there's something novel that people will consume. Here's your reward. And I think you really need to be studying the true and the good and the beautiful in order to say, uh, no, this production is of value to be almost fully adult versus, yeah. uh, I think Ben Sass commented on a little bit, but I'd, I think about this more. Uh, you said someone's in control. I think uh, a lot of those electronic digital platforms, like there are really smart people who are trying to convince you, manipulate you to think that like producing for them is good and that you know provides yeah. when really uh, you're sort of producing at the behest of someone else and it's not real production, it's yeah. uh, to enable cons consumption. Yeah, and he talks about in here uh, that he says that we need to, we need to, it, kids are shielded from what actually goes, what actually sustains life, how food actually gets to the grocery store and where that food comes from. And so he says we need to give our kids experiences to get them in touch with plant tours, do a ride along with the trash guy or, or whatever it is, um, the things that actually uphold society and not just the things that come streaming through your, your devices that, that you... Uh, we have yeah. an economy where the inventor of flappy birds can make millions. Uh, that's problematic. That's, not, flappy that's bird? not the work he's talking about. Right, right, right. No, that's, that's a problem that's, of That's our, winning the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. I have two questions about the Benedict option. Um, one of them is that... Yes, Dreher is whiny. I, I, well, yeah, but I, <laughs> I keep having this, this vision of five years from now going into half-price books and finding 30 copies of the Benedict <laughs> option because people don't want it anymore. Um, and I think part of it is because he, he branded it. He gave it a, a name. He gave it a brand. And so these others have followed as well. And, it's kind of like the purpose-driven life. You know, you can probably find that in all kinds of used bookstores. It's, it's come and it's gone. So I have two questions. The first one is, do you think anybody will be reading Dreyer's book five years from now? Does it have any staying power? Is it a fad? The other question is, um, I had to quit reading Dreyer's blog because every time I would read it, it would incite fear. And, and I find that he tends to be hysterical. And he does, he does point out things that we should be aware of, we should be concerned about. But then he takes it to this fevered pitch. So with it being on the New York Times bestseller list, that does concern me that people will respond in a reactionary way, in a spasmodic way, and not one that's thought out and sustainable. So I'd just like your thoughts on those. So Dreher has this line that he likes to uh, give when he's asked basically that question in interviews, people are like, you're kind of a fear-mongering alarmist, aren't you? Uh, he, he says, yes, I'm an alarmist because the situation is alarming. Um, and so I actually have some sympathy with that perspective. I, do, I don't like Dreher's personality. I do think he's whiny. 
Um, but I have some sympathy with the fact that it's, it, look, if you come along and you're just like, I disagree with you because your, um, your description of the situation is very negative or it's depressing or it makes me, you know, think that the world is, is not in a good place. Well, that's not really a criticism, a criticism unless it's untrue, right? Uh, and so I think that what we have to do is actually go look at the world and evaluate, um, does it justify uh, a level of serious concern and alarm? Uh, and I think it does. Uh, I think there are many aspects of the current situation uh, that are, are deeply uh, troubling, deeply alarming. Um, I could I could go on. Uh, I could probably spend 20 minutes uh, talking about different statistics, uh, sharp spikes in the last uh, 10 years uh, statistically. You know, we've been talking about how many of these trends have been going on for 300 years. You know, since the Enlightenment or something. Um, but there are some good there's some good sociological data to suggest that it's gone beyond just a long slow trend. And in the last five or 10 years, there's been there have been sharp spikes. And unless we do something uh, it's we're in trouble, and so I think I think a certain degree of shrillness, and and even if it is uh, transient, you know, in five years it's no longer relevant because there was a crisis that was right now. Well, so there was a crisis that was right now that we needed to respond to, and and we're either going to respond to it or or, or not. You know, um, I think some of that's justifiable. Now, I do think uh, that he, uh, yeah, he's whiny, and I do think that he. Um, exaggerates certain things. And I think specifically he doesn't pay attention uh, to some of the other trends and movements that give cause for hope. So I actually wanted to uh, mention two in, in what I said, but I, I cut it short. Um, one is uh, the classical education movement. Uh, this has really gained steam in the last five, ten years. Okay, and um, you know, talking to guys like Martin Cothran, uh, it's really taking off, and a lot of people across the country, even not your typical homeschooling types, are starting to wake up and pay attention because uh, the numbers are coming in, right? We've now gone through a set of kids who are educated under these newer classical schools that many of them started in the, in the late 90s, um, and th we're, we're seeing their ACT scores and how they perform in college and what the, the salaries that they go on to earn and whatnot. And so the, the accusation that, oh, this is child abuse or whatever, is just, it's not holding water. And at the same time, the public education system is utterly collapsing. Um, and so I think that's, if we can start, if we can get our kids, and not just our kids, but many hundreds of thousands of kids across the United States away from John Dewey, right, uh, then I think we can save America. We can make America great again if we can get them away from John Dewey. Okay. Uh, and the other one is fertility. Um, we just mentioned it last night, but we have a lot of babies. Um, and this isn't just true of us. Uh, this is true of everyone who shares our, our life-affirming worldview uh, and doesn't just kill our babies um, or, or refuse to get married or have babies in the first place. Um, so our fertility rates are like an order of magnitude higher uh, than the fertility rates of uh, the culture destroyers, uh, the culture of death. Um, and I think in the long run, uh, in a democracy, that's a good thing. But uh, I was Muslims just, have babies too. So. Well, I was just going to say the data is that um, 
of modern countries, the two modern countries that have more than replacement uh, birth rates, everybody know what I mean? You don't just have two kids, two you have above two, two point whatever. The two countries in the modern world that do that are the United States and Israel. Um, I think that says a lot. And so I do think, um, you know, when you aren't having kids, you've given up on life um, as and a in, culture. In those countries, like Germany is a classic example, uh, if you, they're below replacement right now, which means their population is, is shrinking. Um, but if you, if you break it down within Germany by secular humanists and leftists and evangelical Germans, which right. there are still some, yeah. uh, it's the, the, the evangelical Germans actually are having kids, yep. right? So I just read a statistic, or Shannon just shared this with me. Japan now sells more adult diapers than baby diapers. And that's a reflection of the fact that they are not having kids. They also they have the highest suicide married. rate. Yeah. Um, so, all right, so, let's so get one more question. Or com oh. So in, in some make babies and make the babies into adults. <laughs> all right, let's get one more question. Ben. It seems like uh, most of these books are a consideration of our current culture through a specific perspective. Um, you guys read these and you consider our community. Um, did you see any um, weaknesses or inroads um, that were enlightened through their perspective into our community? Things that we need to I may be breaking my arm to pat us on the back, but. They just encouraged me. Um, you know, when I have tuned into these, it has encouraged me that we've had an intuition for 40 years of the things we ought to do. And yes, there's things we need to tune up. And yes, we don't do everything perfectly. But it has encouraged me that we just need to do better what we've always believed in, in many ways. And, you know, make adjustments like are being suggested. But I, I've been very encouraged by, by them. I felt like Rod Dreyer. Rod Dreyer has profiled various communities around the country that are doing this. He could totally profile us. <laughs> yeah. I don't want him to, but he could. The one thing that I would, and I think Dan did a pretty good job of describing it. The one thing, and I'm not, I don't think this guy's the, um, I don't know, the authority on communities by any means, because you see he went from Methodist to Catholic to Orthodox. So he, I, there's not a whole lot of depth there. He, of may, he may not be done moving. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing that I think in a lot of these, or maybe not the SAS book, but um, is the, the liturgy uh, and the tradition and the reading of the early fathers and all of that um, stuff. I don't think we have, as a community, have the depth in that area that, that he is proscribing. Now, I think it's up for debate, you know, how far we want to go in that direction, but I would say that that's one area that I think that, um, and um, I think uh, in terms of the technology stuff too, he, uh, I think that is a, that is a current issue uh, that he had some depth of understanding of and that I, that I think that we as a community probably ought to talk about that because that is one of the ways the enemy, I think, uh, you know, wants to get at us and to understand. And his big thing is that the medium of communication that we use now is affecting us, and so yep. we need to be aware. I, I would like, I'm going to add this as one of the books we might recommend. Uh, there's a book by Andy Crouch called The Tech Wise Family, 
It is really fantastic on these issues. It deals with technology and family life and, and how to curate it. And it goes beyond just setting filters. It, it, it talks about a lot of deeper principles. Just for example, one of the principles he lays out is, it's a good idea in your home for the places where you gather, for the things in that place to challenge you to wisdom and excellence versus consumption. So just the easy example is this, is the central space of your home dominated by a TV or is it dominated by books and musical instruments and cooking and things that challenge you to make and get better? So he goes beyond just, oh, technology's bad. Um, and I, I would recommend that book. And we'll, we'll put it on a list. That's, when I look ahead as the youngest pastor here, that's what concerns me as, as, a, as an issue facing us that's accelerating at, at breakneck speed is, is technology. How do we interact with technology? I think that we as a community need to have conversations about how to do that in a unified way uh, from house to house like, because I think it will profoundly affect the culture of each home, uh, the way we view and use and are used by technology. The way we think. I mean, yeah. All right. We're going to take a five-minute break, and then the thing I skipped on the schedule, we're going to actually go back to. So um, five-minute break, and Billy's going to talk about um, our history as community.